Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 134 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We are so happy to be together today. We have a lot to talk about. Buckle up. So many books. Lots of good reading happening. Yeah, and lots of news mm-hmm. to share. The yeah. first is a little tease about our upcoming read-along. Yes. So those of you who've been listening this year know that we're focusing on nonfiction books for our read-alongs. And we have chosen our book for September, the third quarter. Third quarter. That's amazing. Time is. is flying. This book is about, well, it's about two sisters. It's a biography, a joint biography, and that's all we're going to say for now. We'll tell you more at the end of the episode. You have to wait to the very end. Teasers. (laughs) (laughs) We also have some follow-up information. I don't know if folks remember, but the last couple of episodes, I've been reading the fourth book in the Alice Hoffman book series. The Owen Sisters. Yeah, with the Book of Magic and Practical Magic, etc. And we weren't sure what a series that's four books long is called. Pat, our sound technician, piped in via email after he listened and said, I think it's called a tetralogy. Or we think he said, or a quartet. Or a quartet, yeah. Yeah. And then our listener, Anne from Austin, sent us a lovely email and she confirmed that a series that's four books long is called a tetralogy or quartet. Thank you so much, Anne. She also let us know that two books is a duology, Three books is a trilogy, and five books is a pentology. And then after five, it's just called a series. (laughs) Yeah, that tetralogy. I don't think I've really heard that word. I think all of them are called a series, no matter what. But then after five, I think it's just like, yeah, we're not going to do those names anymore. Yeah, they just say, yeah, her series stopped after seven books, right? (laughs) Or whatever, (laughs) or she's on book 25. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anne lives in Austin. She said she'd love to do a biblio adventure with us. And so I asked her what her favorite bookstores are. And she said, book people in Austin, but then fabled bookshop in Waco and nowhere bookstore in San Antonio. Now we've got to go to Austin, which (laughs) I've never been to. I'd love to go and get ready. Yeah, for sure. Well, (laughs) you know, my sister and brother in law live in Austin. And I've only been there once so far. So we have a place to crash. Right on. I'll call you later, Tracy. (laughs) (laughs) When Laura and I went down, we did go to Book People. And it's one of those great independent bookstores. It has such a fantastic selection of books, but also a really big periodical section, then also fantastic sidelines. And I know we're always looking for unique sidelines, and they definitely do a great job there. Oh, I'd love to go. Let's let's get traveling again. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. So thank you, Anne. Thank you, Pat. Now we understand and know what to call it. The problem is remembering. That's yes, always my that's problem. the hard part. Maybe we should put a big stencil on the wall. <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> Either that or on our foreheads. I'm not sure which is the best way to go. All right. So we've also had some listeners let us know what big books they're reading for our friend Sue Jackson's Big Book Summer Reading Challenge. And that's books over 450 pages, right? No, 400 Four, I pages. I think it's 400. 400. Wow, yeah. look at that. I'm up in the game <laughs> in my mind. Chris is making it harder for everyone. <laughs> yeah, we've had people send us emails. And then on our Goodreads discussion thread for episode 131, we set that up for people to pipe in on their books that they're reading. And Cassie told us that she's reading all three volumes of the Lord of the Rings trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien. Jolene is reading The Border by Don Winslow. 
Aunt Ellen has moved on to her second big book wow. of the summer, The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. So thank you, everybody. We love hearing what people are reading. We really do. Keep it up. Absolutely. On to what we are currently reading. I started Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. I have tried this one several times before. Now I need to read it because my book club is reading Home by Marilyn Robinson, which is the second book in the Gilead series. You know, it's a really quiet book. So I think I have a busy mind and sometimes quiet books don't do so well up there. But I also am giving myself permission. I decided to just move on to Home Mm -hmm. if this one's not doing it for me. I've also been told that it's a great audiobook. So I might try that and see what happens with that. It's a story about a minister talking, I think, to his family about his life. And that's as much as I know, because I've only read a chapter and I've read the same chapter several times. (laughs) But again, that's Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. How about you? Well, I'm reading a Willa Cather novel for the Willa Cather Book Club, and it's Lucy Gayhart which is one of her less read novels. I don't think a lot of people, unless they're really into Cather, pick this one up, which I think is a shame because it's really different than a lot of her other novels. I always look at this one as kind of like the inverse of The Song of the Lark, which is the story of a young girl who grows up in a town out west and becomes an opera singer. This book, Lucy Gayhart, is about a young girl who grows up in a western town and is studying and teaching piano in Chicago and becomes a temporary accompanist to a singer who's, you know, world-renowned. It's all in Chicago for the most part. There are scenes in Haverford, the small town where Lucy lives, and it's set in winter. There's just so many allusions to cold and winter, and I don't want to say anything else because I don't want to give any spoilers, but... That's Lucy Gayhart by Willa Cather. Of course, you know, I recommend all of her novels. What can I say? Yeah, but the fact that it takes place in Chicago is so cool. I had no idea she wrote a novel that took place there. That must be fun for you. Yeah, it is. Because she talks about, you know, the characters walking down Michigan Avenue and Sebastian, the singer, his studio is in the arts building across from the Art Institute. There is a scene where Lucy's talking about seeing him coming out of the Art Institute, I think. And I think the sun is setting and the lion's out front. He's against one of the bronze lions. And I haven't read this one in a while. The singer, he's an older man. He's about 50. And Lucy is 21. So it's also that older established man, younger woman, upcoming kind of storyline And I've never really appreciated Sebastian. But this time, you know, I'm in my 50s now. So reading it, I I have a little bit more understanding and empathy, compassion for both of these characters than I have in the past. Yeah, I'm more than halfway through. It's a pretty short novel. It's just over 100 pages long. Oh, 193. Apparently adding a lot of pages these (laughs) days. Otherwise, it was close to 200. (laughs) Exactly. So what else is going on with you? I see some colorful books there in front of you. Yeah, I just started uh, last night, The Apology Project by Jeanette Escudero. This publishes on August 1st. We've had a copy of this for a while. The publicist reached out to us. We're both in the middle of reading our big books, but I want to be able to read other things. And I'm noticing they have to be certain kind of books or I just can't do there's way too many characters in my head. This one seemed like it would be a good one because it's fast paced and kind of funny. 
Jeanette reminds me a little bit of Stacey Abrams, which I know is saying something like that's a big statement. But I mean, in the literary sense, Mm -hmm. not in the fact that she's a politician or anything like that. But she has written a lot of romance under the pen name Sidney Halston, Mm -hmm. which Stacey Abrams also did. Stacey Abrams has now come out with this kind of like legal thriller, Mm -hmm. I think. And this one is similar. I'm not sure that it's a thriller, but it's a legal drama. The opening scene is this lawyer who's working in a very highfalutin law firm. She's the token female. The men are all jerks. And she has been given her first big assignment to be the lead lawyer for a guy who's kind of in the Harvey Weinstein Me Too situation. Mm. There's been a legal suit against him. And now this is the civil case. And they've put her there so she can look like a woman defending this man. The opening scene, she's talking to the three partners. She's also a partner, but there are these jerky guys and she's wearing these super high heels and she walks around the conference room to give them what for and her heel gets stuck and she's holding a coffee cup and she leans over and falls and kind of moves and trips and ends up elbowing and breaking one of the guy's nose, (laughs) which is kind of the end of her career there. But it's very funny. And so I'm just started. I'm a couple chapters in, but I love a good courtroom drama. So we'll see what happens. But it's called The Apology Project. And then There's a napkin on the cover that says, sorry, and that's crossed out. And then it says, not sorry, and that's crossed out. (laughs) So I'm not sure what's going to happen with this. But Jeanette is a lawyer in, I believe, Miami. Next time I'll have more to say about her, but I'm excited. Thank you to Lake Union Publishing for sending us a copy of this book, The Apology Project by Jeanette Escudero. (laughs) That sounds good. So the other book I'm currently reading is my big book. It's Uh, Bleak House by Charles Dickens, which I am absolutely loving. I was a little intimidated by this book because for one, it's Charles Dickens. For one, it's, you know, like over 800 pages. And then Bleak House, it just sounds like such a downer. And it's dealing with a very harmful case that's going on over a will. It's been going on for like over 30 years or something like that. And it's destroying people's lives in all these different ways. So it's a bit about that, or that's what everything is surrounding. But one of the funny things was last episode in 133, we were talking about Jen McKinley's series, the Library Lovers series. We were trying to decide whether she was a librarian still or wasn't. And I said, well, I think it's like the Marine Corps saying, once a Marine, always a Marine. Once a librarian, always a librarian. So since then, I'm reading along in Bleak House, and I come across a line that says, Once a captain, always a captain. And I was like, what? (laughs) Here we go with that reading synchronicity again. And that's on page 297 of the edition I'm reading. So I posted that on Instagram and our Facebook, I think, too. And I think it was Sue said, check out the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, to find out what the origin was. And I looked there, and they didn't have anything. But then I found in the book, it's a dictionary of slang in unconventional English by Eric Partridge. So the origin of this phrase seems to come from 17th century phrase, once a knave and ever a knave, implying that whatever habit you have becomes second nature. Another one here that's listed that was popular is 
Once a policeman, always a policeman. In the 17th and 18th century, it was also once a whore and ever a whore. Mm. So um, it looks... That's not very generous. <laughs> no, it's not. Well, the whole knave thing, too. Yeah. That's kind of like a sketchy person. Who, yeah. Yeah. To associate that, to have these negative connotations, the knave, the whore, the policeman, and then the captain. But it was interesting because then I was looking at the the usage of this and the definition in that dictionary was talking about it in terms of behavior, right? And Dickens, in the scene where he uses it, it is more about a title. Right. Because they're talking about, he says, Mr. So-and-so, and then in parentheses, or if you believe... Once a captain, always a captain. Which is the way we used it with once a librarian, always a librarian. Yeah, I just thought I would share with you the full title of that dictionary because it has a fantastic subtitle. So it's a dictionary of slang in unconventional English, colloquialisms and catchphrases, fossilized jokes and puns, general nicknames, vulgarisms, and such Americanisms as have been naturalized. That's the full title. And again, that was by Eric Partridge. It was first published in 1937, and it went digital in 2006. Which is how you found it. Yes, I found it searching online. Yeah, Our library does have a copy of that dictionary. Oh, good to know. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, but I'm, I'm really enjoying Bleak House. And, you know, thanks to everyone who's reading along with Emily and I. Emily's reading Anna Kay, Anna Karenina, and both of those Buddy Read pages on Goodreads have been pretty active with people enjoying the novels. Yeah, so I'm reading Anna Karenina, Anna Kay, and I love it. And I'm loving having the company. Do you feel that way too? I do, absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's like having accountability partners, but it's also when you're tackling a book of this size, sometimes you just want to share it with somebody. It's a big accomplishment and it's going to be our companions, you know, this summer. Right, so, yeah. So thank you to everybody. I'm really enjoying it. I finished part one, which was my assignment for the first part. The things that I wrote down as my takeaways are, I love the short chapters and Tolstoy's writing style. The dialogue is fast paced and quick, like people talk in real life. Marriage is complicated. Reading a classic is different in middle age than when you're young. I really had much different feelings about infidelity when I was 20 than I do now, mm-hmm. you know, and understand the complexities of relationships, etc. a lot more now. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. If their names were Bob, Bill, and Sue, the book would be at least 100 pages shorter. <laughs> I'm just saying. And I learned new words. I've been learning lots of new words. Yes, I have to say the same thing with Bleak House. I've had my dictionary on my desk as I'm reading because, well, for one, picking up my phone, I'm 20 minutes then on Twitter for some reason. Yes, but learning so many new words, it's fantastic. Yeah, and I think some of it is just generational in scope, like words we don't really use anymore. But two of them that I wrote down were quadrille and mazurka which has to do with dancing because there's a whole dancing evening ball scene in Anna Karenina I'm loving it and I am going back and forth with reading it and listening to the audiobook and I did choose the audible version with Maggie Gyllenhaal which she just recorded I want to say in 2016 I feel a little badly about that because it's an audible original so the only way you can listen to it is through audible 
but I'm doing something that I've not typically done, which is I also listen to the audio, but then I read it in the print Mm -hmm. and or I read it and then listen to the audio. I don't know why I'm enjoying doing it that way. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to hear the pronunciations, maybe, of the names, could that be part of the joy of that? Yeah, and I think there's also a lot of dialogue in the book, and Maggie Gyllenhaal's an actress, you know, and she's doing a great job. Maybe it's a combination of those things. Mm -hmm. And also just to get it into my brain a little bit in different ways, I think, as well. All the names, the names are very confusing in that book. On the Goodreads page, I did put a link to a character map, because I think it was Trisha said... I can't keep the name straight, which was why I failed with this book last time. And Mm -hmm. I refused to let that be the reason I give up on it this time. Yeah. And I apologize. Someone posted a character link for Bleak House because I did say at one point I needed to start writing the characters down. So I knew who was what, because one of the things Dickens does so well is he's telling this story like the first chapter. I didn't know what was going on. It was very confusing. I didn't understand Now, if I went back, I'd probably understand a lot more, but I thought I'm just going to read and eventually, hopefully it'll start making sense, which it did. But there are so many different characters that come in and out. And then you have this character going along and you've seen them maybe for a few chapters and then you don't see them. And then they come in in an unexpected way. And it's almost like a contemporary movie. That seems to be a thing with movies to mm-hmm. to show how these characters are connected somehow. Anyway, I, I'm just really enjoying that. But I did need to have a list to think like, okay, now who is that guy again? I'm not sure I would do very well with that. Believe me, it is nowhere near as complicated as Anna Kay okay. with the names. It is really not. So what did you just read, Chris? I just finished... The Personal Librarian, and this is a new novel by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. Now, Marie Benedict, we've talked about her in the past because we both read her book, Carnegie's Maid, which was about a young girl from Ireland who became Andrew Carnegie's maid in Pittsburgh, right? That's where they were. Yes, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's kind of the type of book she writes, Marie Benedict, usually, about a woman who is overlooked or one of the people who is surrounding some prominent man in history and giving a different angle on him. So with this book, it is actually about a woman, a real life librarian. Her name is Belle DaCosta Green, and she was the librarian for Morgan's, you know, J.P. Morgan. Mm-hmm. Those of you who have followed our Biblio Adventures know that we've gone to J.P. Morgan's library and museum in New York City. It still exists. But this novel starts with Morgan having the library built. It's already built. It's already there. But he's doing all this collecting. And he decides he needs a library. So the woman, Belle, is working as a librarian at the Princeton University Library. And I think it's one of Morgan's nephews is there and knows Belle And also knows his uncle is looking for a librarian to help him build this collection and keep it organized and document it and everything. She has an interview with Mr. Morgan, and it goes well, and she gets the job. But now the hard thing is, she's a black woman passing as white, which complicates the matter. I had heard about Belle, because, you know, we've been to the Morgan Library several times I don't remember how long ago it was that I'd heard about her and then that she was an African-American woman 
who was passing. It's true she was. So this novel, it's historical biofiction. It's looking at her life and trying to understand why she passed as white. And it's complicated. It talks about her family history. Her dad was the first African-American man to graduate from Harvard. And he was a professor for a while at the University of South Carolina. This is post-Civil War when they're trying to integrate things. And there was just this tremendous sense of hope that equality could happen. And then, of course, politics. Woodrow Wilson, worst president ever, really was the one who reestablished this whole, not even separate but equal, like he just got rid of African-American workers because the white federal employees didn't want to work next to African-Americans and things like that. He was very detrimental. And so Bell's parents, he, the dad is an activist. He's fighting for equality. He's friends with guys like Booker T. Washington and new Frederick Douglass and Dubois and all of these movers and shakers. And the mother, after they're pretty much run out of South Carolina, they go back to D.C., I think where they were from originally. They end up in New York and the mother decides that she's going to have the family pass as white because the growing extremism of the KKK and white supremacy is making it really clear to her that her children aren't going to have a chance of making it in the world as blacks. So she makes that decision and adds the name DeCosta to Belle's name and makes up a grandmother who is from Portugal, I think, Portuguese grandmother, to explain her darker complexion. Because Belle was pretty, I guess, light-skinned, but some of her siblings were even lighter-skinned. So the parents separate over this. Well, and, if he was an activist, he, the father, he must have had very strong feelings. Well, about yeah, that. I mean, that's he's like, because I think what it was is like the Census Bureau person had come to the apartment and Belle's mom was the one who had handled the conversation and said, we're white. And so that's what set things off with the dad And he leaves, they separate, but he goes off and I don't want to say anything and give any spoilers. So that's just a big tension, though, that Belle is passing as a white person. And there's tensions with one of Morgan's daughters who never warms to Belle because she kind of becomes like a family member. She and Morgan are so close and there's sexual tension with them, too. But the daughter is a closeted lesbian. So both she and Belle kind of don't really like each other. And there's that tension too. She just knew so much about early books. And her dad was an art enthusiast. And that's how she learned so much was from one of the books that he had given her, and then going to the art museums in New York as a kid. So she was just so knowledgeable. And then working as a librarian at Princeton knew even more, and was just considered one of the first really successful businesswomen of her time. And she was kind of like a rock star. So cool. I know that there's a picture of her there. Yeah. If you Google her name, you'll see some photographs and some drawings and paintings of her. And I know I read an interview with the authors. So Marie Benedict is a white woman and Victoria Christopher Murray is a black woman. Victoria writes contemporary novels with African-American characters primarily, I believe. And Marie, you know, writes historical fiction about usually white characters. So when I was reading this book, I knew Marie Benedict's name, but I didn't know anything about the co-author. And I was thinking at one point, like, God, I, you know, what would an African-American woman think reading this about how things are being handled? 
And then I think it was you who pointed me to an article at first who explained more about both authors. So that was kind of cool to see. Some of the reviews, professional reviews, are not the kindest. I mean, the content is fascinating, but they do say the book is a bit bland and stilted. Keep that in mind. If you're looking for something that's high literary, this may not be it, but I really enjoyed it for the actual content. And I feel like the book is a jumping off point to learn more about Bell and to learn more about the racial strife in our country and the rise of white supremacy back then, which shades now. Yeah. Yeah. It's an intense book, but I, I do recommend it. And Belle had a tough life, but she also had a lot of joy as well in the work that she did, obviously. And she supported her entire family. Wow. Well, the Morgans were very wealthy, so one would think that they paid her well. Yeah, she got, I think, I don't remember the time frame exactly, but I think within the first three years, he raised her salary three times already because, you know, she was just invaluable. And one of the reasons that Anne, one of Morgan's daughters, didn't like Belle was that Morgan went around saying, Belle is the most important person in my life. Yeah, that can hurt. Yeah. And like, he (laughs) spent the most time with her. Right. And that article with the two authors is actually in the most recent book page magazine for those of you who go to your library and get that. It's probably available online, too. If it is, I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, it was the July book page, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And you could subscribe to book page, too. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, encourage your library, too, if they don't already. I love when that comes out every month. Yeah. Again, that was The Personal Librarian by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. Highly recommend it. Sounds great. I finished The Ninth Hour by Alice McDermott. This is the book that I pulled out of that great little free library in Basalt, Colorado. And yay for me, because usually, you know, you gather books everywhere you go, including little free libraries, but you don't always open them up and read them. But one of our followers on, I think it was Instagram, said, I loved this book. I'm really curious to find out what you think of it, Emily, which encouraged me to open it up and read it. So thank you. Alice McDermott is the winner of the National Book Award for her book, Charming Billy. The way that this cover was designed, I thought this was the winner of the National Book Award. Not that that matters, but I think I might have said that last episode. So I just wanted to clear that up. She's pretty prolific, but this is my first book of hers that I've read. This is the story of Jim and Annie, and they're a young couple just starting out in their marriage. The very opening scene, Jim commits suicide, which I turned to the gentleman caller who happens to be named Jim and is Irish. And I said, I don't know if I can read this book. And he was like, keep going. It'll be fine. (laughs) Darkness doesn't scare him. But I just wanted to read the very opening scene of the book just to give you an understanding of her writing, which is so beautiful, but very spare and kind of quiet. So the chapter is called These Short Dark Days. February 3rd was a dark and dank day altogether, cold spinning rain in the morning and a low steel gray sky the rest of the afternoon. At four, Jim convinced his wife to go out to do her shopping before full darkness fell. He closed the door on her with a gentle wave, His hair was thinning, and he was missing a canine on the right side, but he was nevertheless a handsome man who, at thirty-two, might still have passed for twenty. Heavy brows and deep-set, dark-lashed eyes that had been making women catch their breath since he was sixteen. 
Even if he had grown bald and toothless, as he seemed fated to do, the eyes would have served him long into old age. His overcoat was on the hall tree beside the door. He lifted it and rolled it lengthwise against his thighs. Then he fitted it over the threshold, tucking the cloth of the sleeves and the hem as well as he could into the space beneath the door. Theirs was a railroad flat, kitchen in the back, dining room, living room, bedroom in the front. He needed only to push the heavy couch a few feet farther along the wall to block his wife's return. He stood on the seat to check that the glass transom above the door was tightly closed. Then he stepped down. He straightened the lace on the back of the couch and brushed away the shallow impression his foot had made on the horsehair cushion. And it just sets the tone, and he's preparing to commit suicide. And then what the book is really about is his wife, Annie, who confesses to the nun who comes to help her after her husband commits suicide, that she's newly pregnant. And this nun and many nuns, the book is very nunny, (laughs) really help her and give her a job. She ends up working as a laundress for the nuns. It takes place in Brooklyn. So that's kind of the setting and the stage lovely descriptions. I just really enjoyed this book. And it's not a book that I would say is in my wheelhouse. It's not like I have a huge affinity for nuns. I mean, I did love like Call the Midwives, that series. I've not read the book, but I watched the television series. You know, nuns have taken care of society for years, right? And this book really paints the scene of how they've done that. I really appreciated it and enjoyed it. It was beautiful writing. So I might try to read another Alice McDermott. Again, this one is called The Ninth Hour, and I'm pretty sure it's her most recent book. Oh, and when is that set? What's the what's I the knew time you period? were going to ask me that question. I don't know. When you said the horse hair couch, it just made me think. Yeah, I mean, it's a young Irish immigrant couple. So it's it took place a long time ago. <laughs> but mm-hmm. this is so funny, listeners. The first question Jim always asks me when I'm reading a book is, what time period is it in? And it's about the last thing I pay attention to because I'm not the history buff. And then Chris does the same thing. <laughs> I knew I knew you were going to ask me that question. It doesn't say, but it was a long time ago. Right. Yeah. When people were still doing laundry in the bottom of basements where nuns lived. (laughs) Good answer. Good answer. There's a lot of, there's a lot of laundry in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Did you read anything else? No. The only thing I finished was the personal librarian. I also read When the Stars Go Dark by Paula McLean. Oh, my gosh. I was just listening to an interview with her. Really? Yeah, I really like her. Yeah. And I know this new book of hers is very different. It's very different. So she's known for being a historical fiction writer like Marie Benedict. Yeah, biofiction. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, she's known for several books, but The Paris Wife was the one about Hemingway's wife. Right. Yeah, Hadley. Yeah. And I know that one was very popular. And this is a complete change. This is a thriller slash suspense novel. Mm-hmm. And But I've never read anything by her. So this is my first experience with her. It reminded me a lot of Renee Denfeld's The Child Finder, because the main protagonist is Anna Hart, and she's a missing persons detective. It's a very dark book. And Anna, her background is that she was raised by a mother who passed away when she was about 10 from a drug overdose. The opening scene, she's with her two half-siblings at Christmas. 
The last thing they knew is their mother left the house to go get Christmas gifts, took the $50 she had and OD'd with it. And so young Anna is trying to keep her siblings fed and not let the neighbors know that their mother's not returned. They end up getting taken into foster care. So she grows up as a foster child. But then we meet her again as an adult. There's that opening scene and then the rest is more of her as adult and then having not flashbacks, but memories of her childhood. She's had some sort of an incident where she's lost a child very recently, but but that's kept a mystery. And so she goes back to what was her last hometown, which was Mendocino, California, where she had a really lovely set of foster parents, but they died. And so she doesn't really have family to go back to, but there are some friends that are now all adults that she grew up with. So she kind of goes as a little respite. Her friend is now the head of the police department, and there is a young woman who's gone missing. And so she gets involved in the case. It's very dark. So trigger warnings for folks. There are rape, trauma, PTSD, alcohol abuse, loss of a child, This is not a book to read if any of those things are hard for you. I was able to read it and really keep track of the story because it's so different from Anna Kay. A suspense thriller, that's pretty different. The other thing that Paula McLean does that's interesting, and I'm sure this is because of her historical fiction background, is she actually weaves in real missing persons cases, which is really dark, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, Like Polly Class, who was a young woman who went missing in the early 90s. It was national news, and she was found murdered. The book is not filled with tons of happy endings. It's a dark book. I did like it. I did feel like it's a story that's been told. She just told it in a slightly different way. And it's interesting because in the back of the book, when she talks about authors that she thanks, Renee Denfeld is one of them. So I thought that was really interesting. The other book she mentions, because she's talking a lot about how trauma manifests itself for foster children, because the main character that's missing that they're searching for was adopted. So that's definitely a theme. And that's Paula McLean's background. Her parents surrendered her and her siblings, and she grew up in foster homes and, and had, I believe, child abuse. Yeah. Yeah. She was abused as a child, I should say. Yeah. And she's very honest about that in interviews. I've listened to a couple interviews with her as well about this book. But one of the books she mentions that informed her, Whitney Scherer also mentioned, kind of solved a problem for her when she was writing her book. And it's that book, The Body Keeps the Score by Vessel van der Kolk, mm-hmm. which came out in 2014, but it's on the bestseller list still. Still, yeah. yeah. A very popular book. Yeah. Yeah. That's the book. It talks about how you can have, like, just how the brain works when it comes to trauma, that it doesn't remember things for you to help you, but that it still comes out, like it's still in there, and you are still making decisions and reacting to things based on that trauma, even though you don't remember the trauma. Right. And what she did really well in the book is, I figured out probably midway through the book who did it, who the quote, bad guy was. But she's making a point that the people who commit heinous crimes have trauma as well. Yeah, totally. You know, quite often. And most abusers are people who were abused. And yeah, it's a vicious circle. Yeah. And then also how as trauma survivors, 
you know, how things manifest in your body, the good and the bad, like, you know, people survive horrific things, and they survive and they carry on. Not that it's easy, but they do. Well, and there's that difference between surviving and then thriving, right? And I think more people are now trying to help people thrive and not just survive because survival means, you know, you're hanging on by your white knuckles, which is painful. Yeah. And I think she makes the point that there's the period of survival and then hopefully the thriving. I think that's definitely one of the things that The Body Keeps the Score talks about. The other book she references is The Fact of a Body, which is that book I talked about probably years ago now. That was an amazingly horrific story, but it's kind of a true crime story, but interesting about perpetrator of a crime. So lots to think about. I mean, it would be a very interesting book club book Mm -hmm. if your book club is willing to go to dark places. But again, I did think some of the themes are things that have been told before, but it was a page turner for me. Yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah. She said she didn't plan on writing this at so it can't, something hooked her and you know she wasn't sure and i guess at a meeting with her i don't know if it was her editor or her agent she was pitching it and the woman said well you know i have to go to the bathroom i'll be right back and she was sitting there thinking like oh my god she's going to tell me no that i'm crazy like i can't do this and she came back and she's like okay i'm totally hooked this should be a series tell me more wow. so she was really surprised by that and then so pleasantly surprised by how much great response the book is getting. Yeah. Because, you know, it was such a a change in direction for her. Yeah. And I mean, I think the good thing, even though I say the story has been told before, I don't mean to be mean when I say that. And of course, part of the point of these stories is it gets people talking about things and things are out in the open and it allows for other Mm -hmm. people who have experienced trauma to be able to talk about it. You know, I was thinking about that when I was listening to the interview just about how many books there are about women who've gone missing, daughters who've gone missing. It just seems like every other book that you see is about that. And then I started thinking about like, yeah, in different time periods, the subject matter that you constantly heard about was somebody getting pregnant. And oh my God, what do they do? Do they have an abortion? Or is their life quote over? Or their ambitions are squelched and things like that. So I think like every, I don't even know if it's every generation because these missing women girl books have been going on for more than a generation now, but it is something that is happening. And so many people know somebody that this has happened to, Mm -hmm. or it's your greatest fear. So it makes sense that these books are out there and so prevalent. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's sadly very common experience. Yeah. Again, it's called When the Stars Go Dark by Paula McLean. Chris, did you go on any Biblio adventures? I did. I had a fantastic couch Biblio adventure. I went up to the Emily Dickinson House and Museum in Amherst, Massachusetts. They had a fantastic event. It was a conversation between Elena Smith and Martha Ackman. Now, Elena Smith is the woman who wrote and is producing the Dickinson TV series that I am so in love with. Martha Ackman is a writer and a journalist, and she wrote the book. Her latest book, I should say, is about the 10 defining days in Emily Dickinson's life. Her previous book was about baseball. Her books are so radically different from each other. You can't really pinhole her other than that they're nonfiction. She says her goal is to understand America through these different things that she writes about. 
So her next book that she's currently working on is going to be about Dolly Parton. Oh, yay, Dolly. (laughs) So much fun. (laughs) Yeah, it was a great conversation. They talked for a good hour. I just wanted to highlight a couple things about the TV series, which was kind of like the main focus. I've talked a little bit about the show, right? I mean, but she, uh, Elena was saying that the two central questions of the whole series are, why didn't Emily Dickinson seek fame? And then what was her relationship with Sue, her sister-in-law, who a lot of people say that they were lovers and other people say no. A lot of people know that you can be the love of somebody's life and still be married to somebody else and blah, blah, blah. Anna Karenina, anybody? <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of neat to know that that was the frame. And because it, it's really obvious if you watch the show. And one of the things that Martha said is that the whole issue of Emily Dickinson in ambition is kind of a new subject. A lot of people are still stuck in the old myths about Emily Dickinson, that she was this recluse who never saw people or did anything and just stood around wearing a white dress. And was really ill and just in bed, right? Right. Yeah, Yeah. pretty much. More recent scholarship is really doing away with those old myths and looking at evidence for what Emily actually did in her life, which was pretty amazing. And one of the points is that Emily Dickinson played the long game when it came to her writing and that she wanted to be great and not just famous. Mm. And I think you can say she accomplished that goal, even if it took decades after her life, maybe. The director of the Emily Dickinson house was there too as well. So it was three women in conversation. And it was just so fun to see them all geeking out (laughs) over Emily Dickinson and the 19th century. Because one of the points that they talked about was just how accurate the TV show, the set needs to be. The set and the details needed to be super accurate to make the contemporary overlay that they put on it all the more kind of profound and evocative, which I thought was a great point because Elena said she's been working on the show for like eight or nine years already. And it's only they just finished taping their third season. So she's been developing this for quite a long time. And they've had, you know, set designers at the Emily Dickinson house to really replicate things exactly. And I think that's what I love so much about the show is just that it is so historically accurate looking, but then you have these very contemporary kind of attitudes that in each episode, I should say, is also based around a poem for the most part. People always ask, well, how accurate is this depiction of Emily Dickinson? And so many, I guess, of the contemporary scholars, according to, you know, the experts who are there at this event said very, very accurate. She's not doing anything weird with Emily's biography at all. Yeah. Like, it's all pretty cool and pretty accurate. I think the main difference, too, between the writers, you know, Martha and Elena, is that, you know, Martha talked about when she writes her book, she she creates a big timeline around whatever the subject is and then brings it narrower, narrower, narrower until she has something that's book length. Elena was saying that for her, writing an episode is just kind of like a blueprint for the year of work to come. Because she said each episode takes a year of work. Because you have the script, but then she has to talk to every single person who's involved. And she said it's hundreds of conversations. And when you think about it, that's right. You know, like, you have to talk to everybody from obviously the actors to the set designers, the costumers, lighting folks. But each episode takes a year? 
Yeah. So each, yeah. So like a whole year for the entire season. Oh, the season. Yeah. Okay. So but not like, an episode. Okay. Well, yeah, because one episode is worked on for I the see. whole year. So like, you know, because they, they stagger everything. Like okay. you might start an episode this week and then the next week another episode is going to be in a different phase of production. So what she was saying is that all those episodes go through that, but each episode takes the whole year. I gotcha. To do. Wow. The third season that they just finished taping is set in 1862, Civil War. The second season was 1859. And the first season, now that I know more about Bleak House, was like 1852, 1853, because there's that episode with Bleak House. Right. Where Austin and Lavinia, Emily's siblings, are going off about reading Bleak House and the little individual packets that they came in or pamphlet type things. And there's one line where they're having a Christmas party and somebody asks, is anyone reading Bleak House? And Austin, the brother says, yeah, we're mainlining that shit. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, now I get it. (laughs) It's great. Yeah. So that was just such a fun, really fun um, biblio adventure to catch. I'm glad I did. The Emily Dickinson House and Museum is going to be closed for another year because they are doing a big renovation but they're doing lots of really great online events. So I totally recommend you check them out if you're interested in Emily or the 19th century. There's just so many cool things going on. We'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. How about you? So I just wanted to do a shout out that I forgot to do on the last episode for a Biblio adventure, which was that episode 132 would not have been were it not for the Basalt Regional Library in Basalt, Colorado. Putting together an episode is a multi-stage process, just like the Emily Dickinson (laughs) show. doesn't take us a year, but it takes a lot of hands. And it was my turn to do my part. And I was away on vacation with very poor internet service. So thank goodness for the local library. It's a beautiful library right in downtown Basalt. They have this wall of windows and desks, and it just sits and overlooks the Roaring Fork River. Mm, Beautiful. Just beautiful twist my arm that I have to go to a library on vacation. (laughs) And then I went on a Biblio adventure just this weekend. I went over to Westerly, Rhode Island, where we have an affiliate bookstore that we have a partnership with, Savoy Bookshop and Cafe. Beautiful store. We love it. If you purchase books through uh, Savoy or Bank Square Books, which is their partner bookstore in Mystic, it helps the book cougars. Yes, it does. And we appreciate it. We and do. it absolutely helps the bookstores as well to get your orders directly yes. through them. And they're wonderful at shipping. If you live in a certain radius, they can purchase books for you and hold them. Go shop there. Beautiful, beautiful cafe at the Savoy as well. And when I was leaving the Savoy, there's that used bookstore, which you and I have stopped at before when it first opened, which was a couple years ago. Yeah. 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 And it's called Rereads Bookshop. That store is so beautifully curated. Shout out to Jill, who's the owner. She and I started chatting about books, of course. And I walked in and she has a lot of books. And I said, you wouldn't happen to know if you have a copy of Home by Marilyn Robinson. And she said, I think I do. I'm not quite sure what it would be, where it would be, but she gave me like some zoned in on some geography of the bookstore <laughs> to two possible locations. And I found it. So I was really thrilled. 
I was there with the gentleman caller and his son and we walked out, I want to say with 10 books and that was with dragging the gentleman caller out the door. (laughs) So I get a lot of grief from my children of taking him to bookstores all over the country, but he's usually the one that I have to drag out. (laughs) I was going to say he is not suffering in the least. (laughs) No, (laughs) no. I bribe him with coffee, but he's the one that buys books everywhere we go. So um, but anyway, if you live close by, this is in Westerly. It's a beautiful bookstore. She has a great selection. And um, I was happy to rediscover her. That's great. Yeah. I mean, you can make a day of Westerly. It's such a cool town to walk around. There's lots of great restaurants. Yeah. And there's a train station there too. So if you're near a train, you could possibly just hop on and yeah. spend the day in Westerly. Yeah. There's beautiful beaches there. And there's also a lovely park and a beautiful library, which Chris and I worked at one yeah. time before we went to an event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Chris, do you have any upcoming jaunts? Why, I do, Emily. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> I have um, at least one on my calendars, and I'm super excited about this one. It's August 5th at 6 p.m. It's in real life. Ooh, la, la. Yes. I will be heading up to South Windsor, Connecticut, to the Wood Library, to see John Valeri, our mystery man, in conversation with Emily Arsenal. Her new book is just coming out. It's um, When All the Girls Were Sleeping is the title. And it has a really cool cover, like looking smoky. It actually reminded me of a Stephen King cover. Oh, yeah. Yeah, really good book. This event is sponsored through Book Club on the Go. If you're interested in this book and you want to attend... That'd be fantastic to see you there. It's going to be outside of the Wood Library on their front lawn. If you would be so kind to order your book from bookclubct.com, that is our friend Cindy's website, and she is the mastermind behind book clubs on the go. So be great to help support her because she's doing so much to bring book events, whether it's authors or book clubs or other types of bookish events to the area. She helps host the Willa Cather Book Club. She does. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She's wonderful. And don't panic. We will put all of the information for Cindy's book ordering in the show notes. In the show notes. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, come on. I hope to see you all there if you're in the area anyway. And then you get to meet the mystery man too, John Valeri. That's right. Who is so good at interviewing authors. So it's not to be missed if you cannot miss it. (laughs) (laughs) I too have one on my schedule. It's July 24th at one o'clock in Mystic, Connecticut at Bank Square Books. It's a debut author, Jen Bouchard, and the book is called First Course, which shows you right away. It's right <laughs> up my alley. And the, the little description I've read says, family and food, relatable and realistic, relationships and romance. Jen Bouchard hits the right recipe with First Course. Nice. Sounds good to me. Plus, I always love supporting a debut author. Yeah. So that's, did I say July 24th at one o'clock, Bank Square Books and Mystic? Very cool. Is it in person? I don't, I don't know. know. I didn't even think people were doing things in person. I don't think it's in person. I think it's a Zoom event. Zoom. Yeah. Well, and for those of you who are going to explore Westerly, Rhode Island, or Mystic, Connecticut, they're only like 10 minutes apart, these bookstores, Bank Square Books and Mystic, and then the Savoy Bookshop in Westerly. Yeah, Chris and I have been known to show up at the wrong bookstore. (laughs) 
and have to, what do you call that? Haul ass yes. <laughs> to get to the right bookstore in time. Yes, so, that's why yeah. we have the soundtrack to Smoking the Bandit queued up in case <laughs> we need right. it. One time, I mean, we literally went to, now Bank Square, Mystic, you know, you get to first, Mystic, Connecticut. Westerly is past Mystic. So one time we went to Mystic and we go up to the bookstore and we're like, we don't notice that it's dark. <laughs> pulling on the door handle like nothing's opening and then all of a sudden we realize i think we're at the wrong place <laughs> we had to i think that was for you the give. hate you give yeah. yeah which we were desperate to get to yeah and it was a packed event of course right yeah. so we got there yeah. at perfect timing because yeah. they were trying to fit everybody in it was one of those events where like every chair in the place was pulled up there to make room and pushing yeah bookcases aside for people to sit and i think there were some folks standing too we stood a good crowd did yeah we? yeah okay. we ended up standing in the back because we got there late it was such a good yeah. event i don't yeah. even remember yeah but it does look like the event in bank square is in person so that's so cool that stores are back at it mm-hmm. i'm excited yeah so what about upcoming reads what's on your list i have two i have home by marilyn robinson not sure if I'm going to get through Gilead. If I do, I'll, then I'll head to home. I might just head home. <laughs> and then Her Perfect Life by Hank Philippi Ryan. Nice. Which congratulations to Hank, who's one of the Jungle Reds. The book just got a starred review on Kirkus. And I've been waiting to read it. But I think since it's another fast-paced thrill ride, I can probably read this one while I'm doing Anna Kay as well. Yeah, so. very good. Nice. What about you? Well, I have a couple on my list. One, I'll start with da, 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 Razorblade Tears by S.A. Crosby. Now, I read his novel Blacktop Wasteland last year, and I loved it. Such a good book. It was one of your top tens. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mystery thriller, really action-packed, very masculine. And I, I say that because masculine, because it was all about a guy and other guys in cars. Not that women aren't into cars. I feel like I'm talking myself into a corner here. No, but you know, it just had masculine energy to it, you know. And so this book is going to be another very intense book. It deals with two guys who are ex-cons and one of their gay sons. So there's a lot of homophobia, reckoning with that. And then I believe violence. I've had an arc advanced review copy for a while, but I've been waiting until I was kind of in the right mood because that's some heavy stuff. So I hope to get to that soon, though. I think Maybe after Bleak House. It's getting rave reviews. Yeah. It's been fun to watch his career take off because Blacktop Wasteland was his debut, wasn't it? No, it wasn't, oh, actually. It wasn't? He's oh, written, okay. he's been writing for a while. Oh, I think. so, but that's, I think that's, that the was book like that his breakout off. novel. Okay, got yeah. it. Okay. So I thought he had a novel before that and maybe some short stories, but yeah, Blacktop Wasteland really, really broke him out. Yeah. Another one that I'm really looking forward to is the final girl support group by Grady Hendrix. He's the guy who wrote this, the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires that I love so much. This book is about, you know, slasher films, and there's always one girl surviving. So he takes that concept. So the final girl, and they're real women in real life whose stories inspired the films. So and they're in the support group. I read the first chapter and I was hooked, but again, I had to wait until... I got through Bleak House and some other things. And then there's one more that I have to say. It's going to be National Louise Penny Day, or at least 
National and Chris Wallach's house <laughs> <laughs> on what is that? Um, doo, 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 August 24th, The Madness of Crowds, the next Louise Penny novel comes out that Great day. Great cover. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's just one pine tree, which is kind of curious because it's three pines. So there's just one pine and there's all these really cool colors around it. So I'll be pre-ordering a copy at one of our local bookstores and picking it up that morning and taking the day off. Yes, if you're wondering why it's a national holiday, it's because Chris, everything stops Mm -hmm. and she gets to read the book. I love that. I think we should all do that at least (laughs) once a year. How about once a month? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's halfway through the year past halfway. So we thought we would highlight some of our favorite reads of the year so far, just a little bit, not going too crazy, because personally, I have struggles with this. It's hard for me to name favorites. I've read 42 books this year. That's a lot for me. So I had to go through and look at them and remember and choose. (laughs) But I did. Good. Good. (laughs) Go jump in. I want to hear. I started with a nonfiction, Braiding Sweetgrass, Hands down, Robin Wall Kimmerer. That book I think about all the time. I have it on audio still. I think, you know, since it was written in essays, I'm going to pop in and out and listen to her voice again because I miss her. I got so used to listening to her. Mm-hmm. And then in the memoirs, Finding Freedom, A Cook's Story Remaking a Life from Scratch by Aaron French. I loved that memoir. And then fiction, I chose three. The Wild Ride book was The Hair by Melanie Finn. That book was insanely unusual. (laughs) And then in the epic category and big book category, I should say, is Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. Such a great story. And then Pure Pleasure, The Last Romantics by Tara Conklin, which I think I just talked about last episode or the episode before. Maybe what I'll do is link in the show notes when we talked about each of these books. Okay. We'll see. I'm committing. All right. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) Well, I just picked three novels. I've been more fiction driven this year so far. I have read some nonfiction. I feel like I have a lot of nonfiction that I need to get back to. (laughs) So I just focused on three different types of novels. In the mystery category, I really enjoyed The Shadow Box by Luann Rice. I really love a lot of the details of that book that's still pop into my head and I think about it regularly. I almost put that one down too. I feel the same way. And I was like, this one might make my top 10. So why am I not putting it in my top Anyway, keep going. Because <laughs> you just knew energetically that I'd talk about That's it. That's right. That's it. For a classic slash literary novel, The Country Place by Anne Petrie. That was one of my early books this year. And I really love that story. Anne Petrie is the woman who wrote The Streets that mm-hmm. a lot of folks are familiar with. And Country Place is set in Old Saybrook, which is her town where she was born and raised and then lived most of her life. And then for historical fiction, I chose Leaving Coy's Hill by Catherine A. Sherbrooke. And that was the biography fiction about Lucy Stone. Yeah. Yeah, that I still think about. I still think, too, about Lucy Stone and, and what she did and I think how brave she was to go on the lecture circuit like she did by herself into these crowds to talk about abolitionist causes and suffragist causes and then not taking her husband's name when they married and the brouhaha that that caused. 
Yeah. yeah, so brave. So brave and setting the stage for the future for the rest of us. Yes. Which is lovely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I really enjoyed all three of those and they hit different categories and scratch different itches. Yeah, that's how I <laughs> felt about mine too. And I also just was thinking about this year we've been through and how we were still deep in the pandemic at the beginning of the year and how reading was harder for me in 2020. But 2021, I feel like it's really picked up. And I'm so relieved because I love to read. Yes. Now, I should say that with Lucy Stone, there is a connection with Lucy Stone and our next read along selection. She's the sister in law of these two women who are the subject of Janice P. Nemura's book. You want to say the title? Sure. The Doctors Blackwell, How Two Pioneering Sisters Brought Medicine to Women and Women to Medicine. So excited to read this book. Yes, we're super excited. Now, this is a new book. It just came out 2021. It is available in hardcover as an ebook, as a large print book, and as an audio book. But it is not available in paperback until January 2022. But we're hoping that everybody can get it from the library. If buying a hardcover book is a little bit of a strain, hopefully you can get it from the library or the e-copy too, if you don't like hardcovers. Right. Yeah. And we looked at our libraries. I looked at a couple different library systems and it was readily available. Mm -hmm. So that is something that's a concern for us when we choose a book, but we're hoping people can get it. And it's why we're telling you early. The Zoom conversation will take place on Sunday, September 19th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Send us an email. I'll put an email in the show notes, uh, the email link, I mean, in the show notes, so you can know how to do that. But it's bookcougars at gmail.com. We'd love you to join us. There's going to be a lot to talk about with this book. I cannot wait to read it. Yeah, I can't either. You know, I think women in medicine, it's so important. I mean, women in higher education, it's something that, you know, we're just a couple generations removed from women who fought to be able to get an education. And I think it's so important to keep that in mind. And then specialized education as well. People didn't think women could handle it. Right. And they didn't set out to be the people who they became. <laughs> and that's kind of what the story is about. Yeah. Can't wait to read it. Yeah. So the, the, the two sisters, so it's Elizabeth Blackwell. She was the first woman to get her MD in the United States. And that was in 1849. And then her sister, Emily, was the younger sister and the more brilliant MD, according to the book flap. <laughs> Go, little sister. Go, little sisters. <laughs> yeah, so super excited about this because it's a subject I want to know more about, mm -hmm. you know, women in higher education and specialized education and then just what they went through because this is kind of a sidebar, but I was born in a hospital the Mary Thompson Hospital in Chicago, which was started by one of the first women surgeons in the United States. It was a hospital initially for women and children, I think kind of like destitute women at first. I'm not really sure. And then by the time I was born, it was in a different location from her original hospital, which had burnt down. But then they renamed it the Mary Thompson Hospital. It's kind of cool to know that there were these women-driven hospitals, women-focused hospitals I know a lot of people say, you know, it's not, separate is not a good thing because it may not be as good a quality. But then when you're looking at women's issues like childbirth and women right. specific things, I think it was fantastic that they started having these hospitals where there were women staff yeah. who really 
could do more with women too, because, you know, we've talked about in past episodes, I know about how almost ridiculous it seems now looking back that a, a male doctor couldn't really touch a female patient. So how is he supposed to really examine her? Right. I think this book is going to be really eye-opening for a lot of us. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm interested in it. It's making me, just as you're talking, it's making me think of, um, it's making me think of that Emma Donahue book. The Pull of the Stars, I think. Yeah. I remember how there was the female doctor character that she wasn't treated very well. Right. Let's just say that. Yeah. But then that there were the women nurses taking care of the women patients and right. they could really get in there and help the women deliver right. their children. And that was set during a pandemic too. Yeah. Anywho, join us, the Doctors Blackwell. September so 19th. September 19th is the Zoom conversation, and we will be talking about it with the author at a later date. Yes, she's going to be our guest. So read it, ask us questions, and then come talk with us. Yes. All right, Emily, it looks like another episode has come to an end. It has, sadly. <laughs> Got to go read some more. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and we wish you a lot of happy, happy reading. reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.